News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, with Canada's rapid departure from Afghanistan a few months ago, you know, we're still hearing stories about how traumatic it was and stories of people who barely got out in time. And there are stories that didn't end well, people who didn't make it out and are still there. Occasionally, though, there are good news stories, and we have one of those for you this morning. And for more on that, we turn to Jeff Semple, Senior Correspondent for Global National. Good morning, Jeff. Hey, good morning, Simi. Now, tell me about this story. You're going to be doing this on The New Reality on Saturday evening. Who is this about? Yeah, so this is about Captain Smiley, whose real name is Mohammed Ishmael. Uh, And Ishmael, for about six years, was in charge of security at the Canadian Forces base in Kandahar. Uh, and by all accounts, was a bit of a celebrity on the base. He was uh, well-known, well-liked by the Canadians, who nicknamed him Captain Smiley because he was always smiling. He told me he's, uh, he's just a happy guy. But his was very serious work. He you know, monitored security on the base. He went out on patrol with the Canadians. They came under attack by the Taliban many times. Uh, in fact, his older brother was killed while out on one of those patrols. And so when the Taliban advanced across Afghanistan last summer, he received, he and his family, his wife and his eight-year-old son, had received approval to come to Canada. So they fled their homes in Kandahar. They went to Kabul hoping to catch a flight. But as you'll remember, back in August, there was an ISIS-K terrorist attack against right. that airport. All the flights were grounded after that. And so his family was effectively stranded and homeless, but incredibly Some of the Canadian soldiers whom he used to protect on the base stepped up to protect him and his family. Wow, that's that's amazing. And so it was one of those things where the Canadian forces recognized we can't leave this person behind after everything he's done for us. Yeah, that's exactly right. So some of these veterans he used to work with, they helped to organize uh, a number of safe houses actually in Kabul, secret hotel rooms and apartments where... Ishmael and his family and others who supported Canada could stay and hide. And so Ishmael's family did. They hid there for three months, uh, you know, just hoping and praying that the Taliban wouldn't find them. Um, And then, you know, after about three months, these veterans groups hired a local team to drive Ishmael and his family out of the country because there were no flights, as I mentioned. So they, they put them in a car, did this treacherous trek through the mountains, like six hour drive, overnight, a really dangerous road, and passed more than a dozen Taliban checkpoints. So Ishmael told, described how you know they were pulled over at one point by the Taliban. He's sitting in the backseat with, with his family. At, the fe- at his feet in the backseat is a backpack full of photos of him with the Canadian Ooh. military. So he was terrified that they might search him. He felt he had to take the photos because they were sort of his proof, right, that he had worked with the Canadians. And they're just his, you know, these precious possessions to him. But they're also proof, of course, that he worked with the Canadians. Fortunately, the Taliban didn't search him or the car, and they let the, them you know, continue on their journey. They crossed the border into Pakistan, and from there they were able to book their ticket for a new life in Canada. They arrived in, uh, in Toronto uh, just, just in the last few weeks. Oh, that's amazing. So did he record parts of his journey then, Jeff? Will we be able to see that? Yeah, that's right. You can see that. He, he took videos uh, all along the way, and we actually met up with him uh, during our recent trip to Pakistan and Afghanistan. So we really sort of followed him on his journey out. It was amazing to see, as you noted at the top, uh, you know, sort of some much-needed good news here. And, and once his quarantine was complete, we actually met up with him and his 8-year-old Sunny Matt outside of their Toronto airport hotel and 
took them for a tour of their new city. And, you know, went up the CN Tower, went to Young Dundas <laughs> Square, popped by a Leafs game. So nice. Uh, and connected with some old veterans he used to work with. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. But of course, this is a new chapter, brings a lot of new challenges too. But at this point, uh, the family is just, you know, they're really gracious, really grateful. Uh, and it's a great story. I hope people will check it out. Oh, yeah. I can't even imagine what that kind of culture shock would be like to go from what they just went through and then to be taken on a sightseeing tour of a Canadian city. I mean, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, he said he felt a bit upside down by the whole thing. And, you know, it's. I think I almost underestimated it going into it, just how shocking it would be. I mean, before escaping the country, they had never left the country, uh, Afghanistan. So they had never seen a skyscraper, never seen a streetcar, never seen a squirrel. Uh, and his eight-year-old son was quite taken by the squirrels running around. Uh <laughs> And it's, it is jarring. I mean, you know, Ishmael doesn't read English. Uh, his wife, Tahima, who's in her mid-30s, she grew up under the Taliban's first rule in the 1990s. So she was robbed of her education. She never went to school before. She's illiterate. So now she's getting ready to go to school for the first time. So it is very daunting. Uh, the family doesn't have a lot of money. They each received $50 upon arrival. Though Their housing costs will be covered for one year. But after that, they are largely on their own uh, and are hoping, you know, the community will rally around them, of course. But you know, we see this in, in stats from the Canadian government, Statistics Canada, that first generation refugees typically struggle, but their children are much more likely to thrive. And so for that reason, Ishmael told me there's really no looking back. Oh, I can imagine. And I can't wait. I hope we keep track of them. I hope you go back and visit them every once in a while to see how they're doing. Yeah, I hope so. I'm I'm quite smitten, I have to say. He's a really <laughs> charming guy. I can see why the Canadian soldiers like him, and he is smiling all the time. It's, uh, it's contagious. Well, I can't wait to watch this on Saturday. Jeff, thank you. Thanks, Jimmy. When we talk about climate plans here in Canada, whether it's across the country or here in BC, a big part of those plans involve electrification, meaning we need more electricity to offset the use of fossil fuels. In BC, that's been a big part of the justification for spending billions upon billions for Site C, because we have the benefit of using hydroelectric power in this province. But that isn't the case everywhere. How are other jurisdictions going to go electric? What kind of power will they use? Well, this actually has led to the revival of a discussion about nuclear energy. Countries like the United Kingdom, France, China, they've announced their decisions to actually build more nuclear plants. Why isn't this talked about more in Canada? Well, joining us now is Dr. Chris Kiefer, president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy. Dr. Kiefer, thanks for being here. Hi, Simi. Thanks so much for having me. Why do you think this isn't talked about more? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a real taboo topic, but I'm as confused as you, especially coming from Canada and more specifically Ontario, um, where we achieved what's been called the greatest greenhouse gas reduction in North American history um, with our nuclear-powered coal phase-out. So our can-do nuclear stations provided 90% of the energy we needed to kick coal completely off the grid. You know, it's actually not just North America's greatest reduction, but it's responsible for the majority of Canada's um, emissions reduction since we peaked uh, emissions in 2007. So this is something that we absolutely need to be talking about. I'm, I'm not sure why it's not talked about more in the media, but as you mentioned, um, countries around the world are seeing that there is no path to net zero without nuclear. And have things changed, though, when it comes to nuclear energy? Because I think the image that a lot of people have in their heads is still the giant nuclear plants and the safety concerns that you know went with the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, I mean, it's funny you mentioned giant nuclear plants. Um, I just visited uh, one of the plants near Toronto. It's called Pickering. 
it, it exists on a, a land footprint the size of a Costco. And it provides all of the baseload power for Canada's biggest city here in Toronto. So nuclear stations, although they're kind of large industrial buildings, um, take up a remarkably small land footprint. And it's interesting you mentioned Site C. I mean, this is a dam that floods a vast area, displaces a lot of people. They're very controversial because of that. You know, the James Bay Hydro Project in Quebec, I mean, it produces amazing carbon-free electricity. But let's not forget that it flooded the lands, uh, 11,500 square kilometers of Cree land. So basically what we're saying is that every energy source comes with trade-offs. And because nuclear is so special, because it has this incredible energy density owing to its fuel, um, the, the environmental impacts are actually the smallest with nuclear. That's that's the case that we're making anyway. Right. So so have we gotten better at it? Has that nuclear technology gotten better to deal with all those concerns that we used to have? Absolutely. I mean, there have been accidents. Um, you know, I, I talk about uh, Chernobyl kind of like, you know, the Hindenburg, uh, you know, that, that hydrogen uh, hot air balloon that, that, that went down in, in fire in Germany, um, crewed by the, uh, the, the crew from Jackass, right? Um, we've learned a lot. Um, you know, Chernobyl was an old Russian design. There was an incredible culture of, of secrecy within the Soviet Union that was highly dysfunctional. Um, and just like aviation, I mean, would you not fly because of the Hindenburg accident? There's been a lot of aviation accidents, which have, you know, harmed far more people than nuclear accidents ever have. But we learn. And part of it is the technology advancing, but a huge part of it is what we call human factors. You know, I'm in healthcare, actually do medical simulation training, and we do a ton of drilling that's based both on the aviation and the, the nuclear sector in terms of the safety culture there. So, yes, things have gotten dramatically better, and our uh, can-do design here in, in Canada is an incredibly safe reactor. Is that the, the model now, though, for the types of reactors that are being built? So, I mean, we do have options going forward. Um, I'm a big fan of CANDU for a variety of reasons. A, it's got a, a flawless safety record. Um, it's a completely made-in-Canada technology. Um, our supply chain is 96% based here in Canada. So every dollar we spend um, you know, vitalizes our, our local economies. And that's very different from things like wind and solar, which are almost exclusively produced offshore which provide jobs that are very intermittent, right? Installing and decommissioning solar panels and wind turbines every 20 to 30 years. Um, nuclear, on the other hand, is, is stimulating our local economies. It's, it's so based in Canada, and the communities that spring up around nuclear plants are, are very stable and, and healthy communities. Um, in terms of sort of new generation reactors that are coming out, it's, it's a very exciting time. Um, and there's certainly a role for them. You've probably heard a lot about small modular reactors. Um, these have a tremendous potential, potentially, in, in Canada's far north, helping communities get off uh, diesel, for instance. The Trudeau government has promised famously we'll get Indigenous communities off diesel by 2030. And there's also advanced technologies, um, which, for instance, can take the issue of spent nuclear fuel, which some people call waste, um, and extract the other 95% of the energy that hasn't been harvested by our current generation of reactors. So do you expect that this is a conversation, Dr. Kiefer, that we will be having more of? I think we have no choice but to, to talk about it. You know, it's, it's interesting. I know this is kind of a science segment. You know, human beings co-evolved with fire, right? I mean, that sounds so simple and true, um, but we wouldn't be here without having mastered that as a species. It's done so much for us, uh, you know, as a species in terms of our, our evolution, being who we are. But now that's come with the serious side effect of climate change, and we need to use human ingenuity and problem solving to move beyond a kind of combustion era into a new era. And I think fission provides these remarkable tools, again, by, by producing this energy from such a small uh, land footprint, such a small mining footprint, um, and with you know, providing all of the services that you get from fossil fuels, which, let, let's face it, have been a miracle in terms of increasing human lifespans, 
prosperity, um, you know, child mortality, et cetera. Those are all rooted in having lots of energy. But now we can produce that energy without the side effects in terms of carbon emissions um, or even air pollution, which is a major concern of mine as a medical doctor. So interesting. Dr. Kiefer, thank you very much for your time on that. It's a pleasure. Come on. Thanks for having me. That's Dr. Chris Kiefer. He's the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, saying that Canada needs to think more about expanding nuclear energy as a way of using, you know, less and less of the fossil fuels that we have come to rely on. They're doing it in other countries, UK, France, China. They've all announced plans to build actually more nuclear plants, which honestly, it's been probably decades since we've heard something like that. So why isn't this talked about more here? If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. It was one of the stories that really lit the fuse on the outrage over what's going on in our housing market in Metro Vancouver. Remember when we heard that people who listed their occupation as student were buying multi, multi multi-million dollar homes? Remember the outrage, how angry we all were about that? Well, guess what? There's more where that came from. Read Sam Cooper's latest piece at globalnews.ca and have a listen as Sam joins us now. Good morning, Sam. Morning, Simi. Okay, tell me about this latest situation. So we're talking students who are buying a lot of property. That's right. We we found a, a federal court case uh, that that set out really an amazingly complex investigation by CBSA, including thin track records that pointed to uh, a young man that uh, arrived in Vancouver to, in 2012, very quickly bought a. Uh, a seven-bathroom mansion, 8,500 square feet in Coquitlam. Uh, and, and months later, it was shown in these documents that he flew from the Dominican Republic to Montreal with about 23000 worth of uh, Canadian cash un- undeclared, stuffed in, into his backpack. So he caught the eye of uh, Canadian border officials, and they followed him for years. And, and what emerged was... His father was uh, charged, arrested, uh, allegedly running uh, something like a $200 million Ponzi scheme in China. And the son, who came to Canada to study as an international student before his parents arrived in Toronto, uh, had run something like $33 million in funds through his bank accounts. Uh, The FinTrack record showed uh, the funds traveling from companies his parents ran that looked like shell companies around the world into Caribbean countries, uh, into uh, a lawyer that was listed in the the so-called Paradise Papers database was involved. Just uh, an amazing web of transactions we found. And what the case study showed was that international students, not just the the son at the center of the case, but a number are... uh, listed as being involved in transactions where they receive wire transfers from China and they're uh, buying homes or going to school with funds that are uh, at the very least suspected of uh, perhaps not being legitimately earned offshore and in China. Okay, so then if the CBSA was investigating this, if FinTrack kind of had flagged this case, what is ever done in these situations, Sam? Well, in this situation, the young man has uh, fought successfully a deportation case. Uh, the CBSA accused him of being involved in what looked like, according to their reports, large-scale scale money laundering schemes and transnational organized crime. But uh, it looks like he's beat that case. Uh, according to his lawyer, uh, the, the the, the parents are not involved in wrongdoing, and he's not. So what we have here is 
Look, there, uh, we know from the Cullen Commission, there was another case study about uh, a student, uh, a young female who bought a $14 million mansion. The case study sets out that uh, a man wanted for corruption in China who owns something like 320 acres in a large Chinese city, a real estate developer, uh, ran something like over $100 million into Canada using currency exchanges in Hong Kong with connections to organized crime. And I think that'll ring a bell, uh, Simi, to your listeners, because we know the Cullen Commission is about these large currency exchanges in Vancouver with connections to organized crime. So what it really says about Canada's real estate market are there are increasing number of examinations which point to this model, let's call it a business model, where uh, students, international students, are buying large amounts of property, especially in Vancouver, also Toronto. What also bothered me in reading through your story here, Sam, was that it's clear been known for a long time by authorities in different countries this was going on. You mentioned this person was flagged back in 2012. You talked about a leaked, you know, 2008 Bank of China report that was cited by the Cullen Commission. These, it's not like people at the highest levels didn't know this was going on. Well, that's exactly right. I, I think the point about the, the Bank of China study is important because, look, uh, the Bank of China says this is a huge problem for the nation of China that people that have gotten very rich through alleged corruption specifically use this model. That is, uh, people that are involved in bribes uh, earn a lot of money. They get in trouble with police in China. They ask their children to study in cities like Vancouver, Toronto, Boston, New York, and buy up a lot of property, buy supercars. And this Bank of China study says this is causing, you know, real real estate price surges in cities and harming the societies where this corruption model is taking place. So you're right. At the highest levels in China, allegedly, this is a well-known crime model. It's certainly known by FinTrack, CBSA, and it's being studied at the Cullen Commission. What's being done? Uh, I think it comes down to the, uh, I've said there are so many of these cases really in Vancouver where parents are wanted uh, for, uh, you know, ill-gotten gains abroad. There's a lot of deportation cases, but not a lot of people deported. So uh, what flows from that? Uh, You know, maybe this is about Canada's court systems. Do you think we'll get more stories like this, you know, from that final Cullen Commission report? I really do think we will, because, look, it came out in testimony. One of I I told you about a a BC Lottery Corporation investigator that said he found that uh, students and uh, homemakers were buying lots of casino chips for people hiding behind them. And this investigator found it very interesting. They were also buying lots of real estate. In other words, they were buying homes like casino chips using this, uh, you know, using the occupation student and lurking behind them, according to the commission, is organized crime facilitating these transactions. Sam, fascinating as always. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Simi. Sam Cooper, Global News investigative reporter. Read his latest piece. It's at globalnews.ca. Once again, opening eyes about what's really going on out there with money being moved around and real estate being purchased, particularly here in Metro Vancouver. Well, this morning, we want to hear about the charitable organization that is near and dear to your heart so we can highlight the work that they do. This is the time of year when a lot of people do remember, oh, I've got to make sure that I do this. I want to donate this. 
And maybe, you know, you don't have the ability to give a lot of money this year, understandable. Well, you can also donate your time. That's why we're talking to this next organization, too. It's Tristan Jagger is with us, the founder and CEO of Vancouver Food Runners. Tristan, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. What is it that your organization, first of all, does? So um, we organize food rescues, we call them, um, through our app called Vancouver Food Runners, which can be downloaded from the Apple Store. And when active food is available from restaurants, bakeries, groceries, grocery stores, they call us and we match their active food with one of our 92 charity partners. And we post it to the Vancouver Food Runners app, that match, where volunteers can claim it and take the access food directly to the charity or to the community partner. I know we've talked to you before, but every time you describe it to me, I just, I love it so much. (laughs) I'm I'm so glad. (laughs) How successful is this? Like, do people, like, you've saved a lot of food and you've fed a lot of people. Yes. So we are feeding about 10,000 people a week because of amazing volunteers. And as we go into the holiday season, we're just looking for more and more volunteers. Our goal is to try and rescue a million pounds of food by the, the new year. So um, we've got a big, a big uh, number on us, but we are really excited. And there are so many people that need food. So we really know that this is something we can accomplish. And is it, you started this during the pandemic. We did, yeah. So we've only been going for about um, a year and a half. And um, every single month, we seem to get more and more calls for access food and community partners that need it. So we have just been developing our volunteer pool, pool uh, our volunteers to try and um, be able to to rescue all this food. Right. Okay. And that was the other reason why we wanted to talk to you this morning, because sometimes people, they, you know, financial times are tough for a lot of people. They can't necessarily donate money or goods, but you also need people's time. That's right. Like every food rescue is a, is about 166 pounds of food that each person can rescue at a time, which is equivalent to about 145 meals. So it's very rewarding for a volunteer and it's very flexible. You can just see when a food rescue is available and you can uh, choose to accept it or not. So it's extremely flexible. And each food run only takes about an hour. So you can do your good deed and then go on with your day. Okay, that's amazing. And is this all over Metro Vancouver? Yes, it's all over Vancouver. Okay, so it just feels like, Tristan, every time we've talked to you, this has grown and grown and grown. (laughs) Yes. Yes, it truly has. Um, never, um, you know, never we thought this would grow so quickly. But, you know, there's been a lot of challenges this last year with COVID and um, the the floods now. Um, and people are hungry and our yeah. city is seeing that. You know, we see about one in nine families are food insecure and one in six children are food insecure. So you know that there's a lot of excess food from caterers and restaurants and cafes, and they want to put it in good hands. So that's what we're here to do. So what kind of an impact has the floods had on your organization? Well, you know, the supply chain, we all know, has been, you know, challenged this last few weeks. So one thing we do know is that many families on a tight budget, they don't stock up you know, their food for the, for weeks ahead. So when they go to a grocery store and there's not nothing there, then they're stuck. They don't have a backup plan. Right. So you're getting a lot of calls like that then. I would imagine it's a a lot of barely making it in time food donations. Exactly. Exactly. And we're rerouting some of our food donations to get to certain uh, community partners that, you know, are working with people that have been affected by the flood.
Did you ever think, Tristan, like when you started this, uh, what was, tell us a story again of how you started doing this. Well, you know, I'm just a mom of four little kids and I found out that number, that the one in six kids are hungry in Vancouver. And so I just started doing some research and found um, that, you know, other countries were using technology to help solve, solve it. And so I, yeah, I, I licensed this amazing app and the Vancouver Food Runners app and um i brought it to vancouver so yeah <laughs> just like that right and, you, <laughs> yeah, and then exactly. you were probably thinking there's no way it's going to turn into this huge thing of well, consuming that, all your time that that's just it you know i never thought we'd be heading into a million pounds that was kind of a 10-year plan not a not a year and a half plan so i mean but that's just to say that you know there's so much food that's access in our city and so many people that need it. So it's, you know, it's obviously working and it's a good thing. So we just need more volunteers to help us move that food. Okay. And where can people sign up? Yeah. So either on our website, www.vancouverfoodrunners.com or just download the app. It's free. It's called the Vancouver Food Runners. And uh, you can start seeing all the food rescues that are available this week as soon as you sign up. Okay, amazing. And so where does the food come from then? Like when you're rescuing food, Tristan, where's that from? So we now have, I think last time I talked to you, it was probably quite small, like 30, but now we have about 150 um, uh, food donors and they are all different. Like it's a different, like Terrebred, Safeway, Fresh Direct. So basically they're like caterers, grocery stores, restaurants, cafes, um, uh, produce shops. You know, so many people have now heard about it and everyone's looking to not throw their stuff in the landfill. So I think that the word of mouth is growing. And yeah, if you're a food supplier and you have access to food, definitely give us a call too or look us up on their website, www.thinkoverfoodrunners.com. That's the amazing thing too about this is that in before, this is food that just would have gone to waste. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And even, you know, some of the amazing hotels in our city, like the Marriott, they've stepped up and they, they're cooking meals for us. Um, to pick up and sometimes we go and take 175 meals to Covenant House just because that chef that day felt you know that he wanted to do something great and we can help we can help the logistics of that so yeah it feels really good when that kind of thing happens I love it okay so once again you could use a lot of volunteers right now right you need what something like 50 yes we could we could use some volunteers and you know with the gas short the gas shortage too we were, you know, if you have an electrical car, this is the perfect time to step up and do some volunteering. Um, we do have a lot of rescues, food rescues available. This is the time of the year. A lot of people need food and um, we do have a ton of food rescues available. So if you're, if you have an extra hour in your week that you could fit this in, um, we'd be very grateful. All right. VancouverFoodRunners.com. Yeah. We'll see what we can do. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Tristan. <laughs> Okay, take care. Best of luck. That's Tristan Jagger, founder and CEO of Vancouver Food Runners. Is that just not, every time I talk to her, I think, what an amazing story. Just a mom, four little kids and thought, oh, like we're wasting a lot of food and kids are hungry. This shouldn't be happening. Boom. Look at what she created. Look at with the help of so many people she is now making happen. Has Canada been approaching screening for breast cancer all wrong? Have we lost lives because of it? Well, we base our procedures on studies from the 1980s, but now there are serious questions about whether those studies were completely accurate. So what has been going on with all of this? Well, to explain that, we're joined this morning by Dr. Paula Gordon, who's a radiology researcher and clinical professor at UBC. Dr. Gordon, thank you for joining us. Good morning. Thank you. How did this all get started? What's been going on? Well, 
the studies that you're talking about were done in the 1980s, and uh, 15 centers across Canada recruited 50,000 women, and it was supposed to be what's called a randomized control trial, where women are blindly, without knowledge of any of their characteristics, uh, to either a control group or a mammogram group. And at the end of a bunch of years, you measure how many women have died in each group, and then you decide whether mammograms contributed to saving lives. This study was flawed from the start, both by its design and its execution. And researchers have actually known that since 1992. It's not new, but the, the, what's changed this week is we published uh, our data after um, a whistleblower, if you want, came forward, a technologist who worked at, at one of the screening sites who confirmed what we'd already suspected for decades, and that's that the randomization process was tampered with. Probably unintentionally, but instead of women being assigned to either the control group or the mammogram group randomly, all the women who attended before they were given their assignment had a really good breast exam by a nurse. And so we now know that instead of being blindly randomized, women with lumps in their breasts, women with not only lumps in their breasts, but in their armpits, which indicates lymph node spread, were preferentially assigned to the mammogram group. They bypassed the randomization process. And so you had more women with advanced breast cancer, excuse me, in the mammogram group to begin with. So when they counted up the number of deaths, of course, there were more deaths in the mammogram group, which made it look, not only did it make it look like mammograms don't save lives, it actually made it look like you were more likely to die if you had a mammogram. Okay, and how so, could this have gone on for so long? Because that that changed how all family doctors deal with someone, a woman who feels that maybe she has a lump or needs a test. You're absolutely right. The reason it went on so long is the principal investigators of the study, uh, doctors Bain and Baines and Miller, kept insisting that everything was just fine. And uh, the Canadian Task Force, which is the panel that comes out with the guidelines, Um, decided that they were going to throw all these randomized trials into their analysis, even though they were told that these trials were flawed. Uh, The reason for that is that there are no breast cancer experts on that task force. I mean, I think Canadians would be shocked to hear. I'm shocked to hear actually all of this right now because we, we, we trust that we're doing these things for a reason, but to find out that we've known, you know, for 30 years that, yeah, maybe we weren't completely accurate about this. Like, but women have probably gotten breast cancer as a result of this. Oh, you know, we're all familiar with the term modeling now through COVID. Modeling shows that by not screening women until age 50, which is, which is what's done in many provinces, thankfully not BC, many provinces don't let women come to a screening mammogram until age 50. And the modeling shows that if you do that, there will be an additional unnecessary 400 deaths each year in Canada. We know women have been dying because of this guideline. And the, um, the task force, which comes out with the guidelines, is funded by uh, PHAC, uh, you know, Theresa Tam and the... Um, right. That uh, that agency funds the task force, but when the task force comes out with these guidelines and we complain about them, we're told, oh, well, we're hands off, we're arm's length, they can make the guidelines and we can't impose any expertise on them. And the task force feels, and they say this, they can't have experts on the panel because we all have a conflict of interest. 
they they claim that our research is motivated by self-interest, that the only reason I'm saying that women should have mammograms starting at 40 is so that I can earn more money as a radiologist. And I will tell you, I am semi-retired. I'm not going to make a nickel out of this. The people who have been saying it for decades are not increasing their incomes, but what it's doing is saving lives. Dr. Gordon, this must have been quite the week for you with this coming out and you talking about this now. It feels like you've kind of ripped open this this whole discussion. Will anything change as a result of all of this? Well, that depends. The task force says they're not going to revisit their guidelines. I think that they have to be forced to. I think they have to be forced to have experts on their panels. And that'll only happen if um, uh, PHAC makes them. How do we do that, though? So, like, if, if I go, go to, if a, if a woman in her 40s goes to her doctor and says, I want a mammogram, right now, there's a very good chance a doctor will say, well, I can't get that for you because it's not recommended. Well, in British Columbia, women can self-refer to our screening program. But in the other provinces, that's what happens. They're forced to go to their doctors. And uh, the doctors have been uh, swamped with information from the task force, and they tend to have to believe them because family doctors have to know everything about everything. They can't research the the nuances of mammography and screening. And so when a family doctor swallows that information, that misinformation, you're right. Many of them refuse to write a requisition. The solution, I, I have to say, is for people who are not doctors, people like you, women who get this. I mean, it's not that hard to understand. It's not. To start advocating, because that's what moves the needle. The policymakers and the politicians don't listen to experts, but they listen to voters. And that's how we changed in British Columbia. Patient advocates got the screening program to start telling women their breast density, for example, from their mammograms. The provincial, uh, the, the government said we're going to start paying for supplemental screening ultrasound for women who have dense breasts because we know that ultrasound can find the cancers that are hidden in mammograms on dense breasts. Only when, when patient advocates go to work, when women, lay women, mm-hmm. and the way to do that is to contact their, uh, their legislative representatives in their province. Contact them. You don't have to do this in British Columbia because we're, we're okay, but the women in other provinces have to contact their MLAs or MPPs. Contact your MP. Um, write the, the federal minister of health. They're the ones through PHAC right. who, um, who fund but this task force. You said that BC doesn't have to do that. Why? Do we, we have different recommendations here? Yes, it, it, this is the crazy thing. The recommendations vary by, by province. So BC is one of the provinces that lets women self-refer for a screening mammogram starting at 40. Now, they have to know that that's even possible. Women and, need and to know don't. that they can do it. If they have a family doctor that doesn't encourage them to have a screening mammogram, they're not going to do it. But, but there are provinces where women are begging to have screening mammograms, and they are told, sorry, you can't have one till you're 50. And those provinces are where women show up in their 40s with a cancer that's already advanced, and women in their 40s are not dispensable. You know, they have young children at home. They're caring for aging parents. They're contributing to the economy. They're working. I'm and just, uh, we want to save those lives. Yeah, no kidding. I, uh, this is really kind of stunning when you hear about this. This has been going on for so long. Dr. Gordon, we'll have to bring you back to talk more about this and let us know if there's any updates. So thank you very much for your time.
I'm so glad for you bringing it to your listeners' attention. Thanks. That is Dr. Paula Gordon, radiology researcher and clinical professor at UBC. With this latest study, she's kind of helping to blow the lid off of this breast cancer screening guideline situation. Something you really, you know, women out there need to talk to their doctor, do a little research on this for sure.